All right, episode number one of Mr. Rubio Used to Run. It's here. We are live. I'm Connor from Running Warehouse, and we are here with a legend, Olympic trials qualifier in the marathon, Hoka Aggies coach, founder of Running Warehouse. You don't get to see this face too often. We got the infamous Joe Rubio. Yeah, you're going to get sick of it after a while. So (laughs) actually, Connor, give us a little bit of background on yourself. Well, you know. I mean, you're the goat, but (laughs) I am the goat. I am the goat, but. I have a little bit of a background, maybe not quite as much as yourself. No, but but you can competitive background. Yeah. You know, I go back 20 years. We go my first race, about seven years old, first half marathon at nine years old, ran through high school, ran through college, ran after college, coached by yourself. And we are here today, been in the running shoe game for a while. And, you know, I think a lot of people didn't even think this podcast was going to happen. You put me and you in a room together. It could be crazy. A little bit of trouble. Yeah. We're going to get real. We're going to get raw. I want to talk now <laughs> well, a little no, bit more about you. Just a little bit more about you. You come from a tennis family, right? Well, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. So I, I come from tennis. It had an aunt who was national champion, sister who was the top runner or was the top tennis She's player. She's in the Hall of Fame. The Hall Cal of Fame. Cal Poly Hall of Fame. Yep. Big time. Yep. So... Uh, huge tennis family, but switched on over because, you know, running was also a little bit in there too. My grandpa ran and, uh, Boston marathon age grouper. So nice. uh, the nice. rest is history. Yeah. Huh? So you let the family down mm, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit, but, uh, I've made, I've made back up. <laughs> yeah. So a little of my background, uh, uh, basically to bore everyone, but, uh, I started running in 1977 <laughs> because my dad, said you need to get your ass out of the house and start doing something instead of watching TV all day. I was really good at watching Gilligan's Island and that sort of thing. So, um, But I went out and a friend of mine was running on the track team, the eighth grade track team at uh, Will, or actually Edwin Markham Junior High, and I just started hanging out with him. And uh, fortunate that we had the, the state champion in the mile running at the high school at the time. So he was really, it was really cool to see that because he was in the paper all the time. And he actually goes went to Stanford on a full ride and stuff like that. So that was kind of cool to get that going. But um, yeah, I started running in eighth grade. And I was horrible, like horrible. Like some people are going to listen to this. That's not horrible. But I ran 13.28 for my first two mile. So I thought I was going to be a 200 meter runner. And I was pretty timid at the time. And I just kept waiting for all these heats of the 200 to go at this track meet. And finally came down, and I was the last kid standing there. And the guy said, what are you, what are you doing? I said, well, I want to run the 200. And he says, well, the, that race is over. You run the next race. And I said, what's that? He goes, it's the two-mile. So I didn't know what the two-mile was, but I started running it. And you know when you get those, those whatever, stitches in your shoulder, oh, yeah. right? It makes your oh, neck yeah. all sore. I got <laughs> one of those and all that kind of stuff. But anyways, met a lot of cool people and hung in it. And then uh, actually started getting pretty decent by the time I was a sophomore. Um, by the time I was a senior, I was third in the nation, the 5,000, uh, which was pretty easy to do because no one ran the 5,000 except for maybe three guys. So <laughs> so I was third in the nation in that. And then I went to community college and set the school record in the 10,000, was All-American there. And I was at the stage when, uh, at the end of my sophomore cross-country season, I said, um, I need to have a heck of a track season or I'm done running competitively. So, but at the end of cross-country, I ran, I made it pretty easy plan. I said, I'm going to run an hour a day, six days a week and 90 minutes on Sundays. And I can do that until track season starts. And then I ended up having a really good track season. Ended up getting a stress fracture, but at the time, (laughs) at the time, uh, was leading the state in the 1500, the 5,000 and the 10,000. 
but uh, we'll go into this later when we talk about foams, but the shoes back then were really horrible. Yeah. So it's not surprising I got a stress fracture. So, and then I went to UC Irvine, a track very, very tiny track scholarship, uh, but I went anyways and uh, learned a valuable lesson that you go to school because you like the school, not because of the track program. But it was pretty cool down there when we were, I mean, it was uh, 84 Olympics and, you know, we go to Shakey's Pizza with Daley Thompson, right? Daley Thompson had the world record gold medalist in the decathlon. Uh, Edwin Moses was working out there. Uh, Steve Scott would show up occasionally and run with us. It was just a really cool scene. Yeah. But I ended up transferring to Cal Poly and I've been stuck here ever since. So yeah. um, it was All-American at Cal Poly. And then uh, uh, when I had my... Uh, last race i basically was out running and mark conover who ended up being the head coach at cal poly said he needed a roommate so i moved in with him and he was my training partner and that was kind of cool in 88 he won the olympic trials in the marathon it's kind of cool when your roommate makes the olympic team so he took off for the olympics and left me and my other roommate pete with the dog basically just took a bag of food and opened it up on our doorstep and didn't leave us with any instructions so we had the dog for a month but anyways so train with Mark and Ivan Huff and a couple other guys in town. And then I made uh, 92 and 96 Olympic trials and then went into the shoe business in 92. And uh, this was, I thought it was a good idea to load up Reebok track spikes in the back of a Mazda pickup and drive all over the United States, basically all over California and sell track spikes to kids. And we had one training shoe at the time it was a Reebok something or other and uh, set up shop like the Olympic trials and things like that. But it's really difficult to make a living that way because there's only one guy in one truck and track meets only happen on the weekend. So, um, but stay with that for a couple of years. And then, um, <clears throat> this was in 2004 and I had a small shop and selling track and field stuff. And this guy, Mike McManus, who's in charge of the pro athletes for Hoka right now at the time he was in charge of tennis and track and field for Adidas and he was our sales rep. So, he showed up one day, and he lived up in Danville or something like that, the Bay Area. We're in San Luis Obispo, so it's a four-hour drive. And he'd have to leave at three or four in the morning to beat traffic. So he came into the store. showed me track uniforms and track spikes. And I said, Mike, what the hell are you doing here? And he says, I'm here to see you. I go, BS. What are you doing here? He's all, well, I'm actually here to see Tennis Warehouse. I go, what's Tennis Warehouse? He goes, he used to say cats back then. He said, those cats have a badass website. They're so good at send, selling tennis stuff. And, he, he and goes, then did I, you say, what, what's a website? <laughs> no, I said, what, how do they sell? He said, mostly on, on the web. I said, yeah. okay. And I kind of forgot about it until like four months later. And back then, you used to read the paper all the time. My, the internet didn't really exist and all that kind of stuff. So I was reading the Tribune, and in the back, there was an interview with my, part, my current partner, Drew. And he laid out all the stuff of why his philosophy and why small businesses stay small. And he was correct. The reason a small business stays small is because you have one guy trying to do a bunch, one guy or gal doing a bunch of stuff they're not very good at. So someone like me doing taxes, someone like me doing HR, someone like me trying to do programming or video or whatever it is, right? And he had a system in place where all those things were taken care of. And a guy like me, all I have to do is stay in my lane and no running shoes, which I do i know running shoes and racing flats and other people in the industry so mark and drew take care of the back end i take care of the like it's like i'm the face and i know all the running people but we literally had three 15 minute meetings and they said when he's starting running warehouse and i said i gotta put on a fourth of july race i'll be over here on the 12th and then after the fourth of july race i went and saw my my partner at the time I told him i was leaving and starting another business and he says, what are you going to do with your shares? I said, you can have my shares. He says, you want any cash? He said, I don't want anything. 
I just walked away. Now, at the time, brick and mortar was basically, it ruled the space. Yeah. No one really talked about or knew about online selling shoes. How crazy was that for you? Did you see that long term or did you also think it was a little speculative? Well, to go into the this thing space? was, is we were selling some stuff online at my other business, but we didn't have the software. We didn't have like the people in place to get really scale it and do it properly. And the sports warehouse did. So I looked at that and then I also looked at the space. And at the time, you know, when I was growing up, you had like Ryan Sports Shop and things like that. And um, those were the stores that you went to that had, they talked about training, they talked about races, they had every shoe there was. And at the time, there was only like three or four. So it wasn't very hard. They had the racing stuff, the track and field stuff, uh, shots, discs, all that kind of stuff. Um, it was like a, a community hub for running. So I said, well, you know, that's what we wanted to do online is replicate that as much as possible. So that, that, that was the original idea. But yeah, when at the time we could not get an online account without opening a store right now, you, you we could, we could not have a store and be fine. But at the time you actually had a functioning store. And then after your store was working, then you could get an online account. And still at the time there's brands that would not give us an online account. But some of the first ones that did was Brooks was one our first one. And actually Nike was second because uh, Fred Doyle, who's retired now, but and he later went on to Saucony, he had a really good relationship with Tennis Warehouse. So he says, well, if tennis is going into running, I'm with him. So we were fortunate that way because getting a Nike account now is really difficult. Then I had the connections at Adidas with Mike, you know, and same thing with Asics, had the Asics connections and all that kind of stuff. So it wasn't, it wasn't that tough. It took us about a year to get all the accounts. But um, anyways, so tended to work out. Well, I mean, if we look at the shoes from when you started the company oh, yeah. to today, and then maybe even going back to when you first started running, technology, brands, models have come so far. Yeah. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. Do, do you remember your first pair of shoes that you My bought? first pair of shoes, well, actually, it was a pair of basketball shoes to run track in. It was <laughs> Puma Clydes, which were yellow and black. I had something about yellow and black. I even, uh, well, this will come up later. I had an athlete's, athlete's attic. Yeah, something like that uh, bag that was yellow and black. Uh, but So you then, wanted them to match. Yeah, I wanted them to match. And then, um, you know, I can say this because Connor's wearing uh, uh, cutoff uh, jeans <laughs> <laughs> for shorts that are a little fringed. And those were actually my first running shorts was back in 1977 was that kind of stuff. So we but had to bring back the cutoff jeans. Had to bring back the cutoff jeans, right? Okay. Um, you only do that a couple times before the chafing really gets the better of you, right? So, but as far as history of running shoes, I mean, I was just down before we started talking about the podcast today and talking to Crawford, who's the worldwide expert on tennis rackets. But in college at Princeton, he was a 800 meter runner, probably the fattest 800 meter runner in America, but he still was pretty decent. And he was talking about the first pair of running shoes that were made in wits was the New Balance Trackster. So it was the early 60s. He said he remembers him and the Princeton cross country team going to this little tiny cobbler shop somewhere in Boston. And this guy with a white shirt and wingtip shoes and fancy slacks would measure their feet and custom made the shoe. And the thing about the shoe is it came in widths because, you you know, some people have wider feet or whatever. But it also, if you looked at the shoe from the side, it had a rubber outsole that was shaped like a saw. So it went, so it was the first attempt at really doing some sort of technology where you absorb the cushioning. And that's the major concern at the time is how can we make a shoe more cushioned? And so that was a the big, big deal, like 68. If you see some of the shoes from like 68, the Tiger Marathon, I mean, it is so, so narrow. I mean, low to the ground, yep. 
right? And then it wasn't until uh, 1975 uh, where you had EVA, which I think was originally used in the toy industry. But anyways, a guy named Mario LaCorey, who had the American record in the 5,000, also was a pretty good businessman. Uh, he announced on TV for many, many years, but uh, he had a company called Athletic Attic with a guy named Jimmy Carnes. And Jimmy Carnes was... I want to say it had something to do with Athletics Congress, which was USA Track and Field at the time. But anyways, they had this thing called Athletic Attic, and um, and uh, which called LaCorey convinced the owner of Brooks, which I think was Jerry Turner at the time, that if we could put a lighter, softer foam, that it would revolutionize the running shoe industry, right? And this is before Frank Shorter, right? Really blew things up. And so he did invent uh, Brooks Shoe, and uh, LaCorey went to Villanova, University, and that's what the name of the shoe was. So EVA came about in 1975. And EVA's been still around, here. you know, today. It's still and here. Did the EVA back then feel like it does today? No, or it, 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 you know, there's additives in it now, but yeah, it was really affected by weather. In fact, EVA right now, it loses 30, 40% of its cushioning when it's cold, yeah. you know, and it gets hard, yeah. right? It, it, life Lifespan on EVA is really short. It might be 100 miles, mm-hmm. 150 miles. You know, when they tell you a shoe lasts 300 miles, it doesn't. You know, you can tell how flat they go. But anyways, um, they had the, 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 what you call it, the Brooksville Nova. And then uh, Nike Air came along in, was it, 78? Yeah, I think with the tailwind. The tailwind, yeah. yeah. And uh, I was in high school, and the number one guy on our team, Scott Cooper, bought them. And he went on one run in them, and he screwed up his Achilles because the shoes were so, so, so soft. And there was no rebound to it whatsoever. So were, once, were there many soft shoes back then, or was that no, one of the first? No, that was the first really soft shoe, yeah. right? Uh, you had things like the Internationalist and like Nike Waffles and stuff like that. But yeah, um, yeah it was not. It wasn't a pleasant experience. Like the Adidas, Adidas was a big brand at the time. You had the Marathon, the TRX Trainer. Those things were bricks, like really painful to run in. Yeah. Um, but you still ran 100 miles a week in them because that's you know, what you did. You don't like those shoes, but I bet there's three or four people out there that best, are going to type in the comments, best shoe ever. Best shoe ever. Bring it back. Well, we <laughs> did that. We had a bunch of people comment, this was a number of years ago, about the Clifton One. Do you have the Clifton One? We, we might actually we have, have a Clifton, Clifton One, one right, okay, here. right here. This is an original. Yes. For you people that are listening to the podcast, if you tune into our YouTube channel and look at it, you can actually see video of the first Clifton. So we had people for years commenting and yelling and screaming that they want us to bring back the Clifton One. We convinced Hoka to do that, and all 12 people that really wanted the Clifton One bought them, and that was it. And they might have even bought two. Maybe, but we were stuck with thousands of pair of Clifton <laughs> Ones, and whatever people say about they want, that was the greatest shoe ever, yeah. uh, they don't buy it. Yeah. It's like cars. I'm into cars, and yeah. you know you can think how great your 57 Bug was. I had a 57 Bug, oval window and everything. It is not a pleasant experience at all <laughs> <laughs> to drive that stupid thing. So um, let's see. what are the, So then so, we move into the 80s. And yeah. I feel like 80s was actually a pretty big advancement. Yeah. Uh, you had Phylon, which was compression molded EVA. Uh, and that was from Nike. Um, something more of a minor thing is a fulcrum was invented by Carhu back mm. in the early 80s. Uh, that was kind of a, a thing. And then the, the big thing in, in the early 80s was the medial post. Mm. So this is a lot of people don't know what that is, but uh, a lot of the science at the time said that uh, injuries were caused by overpronation. And so that's what the whole industry revolved around, was putting a medial post, putting something firm on the medial, the inside near your heel ankle area to prevent your foot from collapsing in. 
and the first used to do that with the Chariot, which is now the Beast. Mm-hmm. And I want to say the Excalibur GT, which is now the Kion or the 2000, one of the two yeah. from Asics. And then everyone went that way. And running shoe stores at the time put in treadmills, videotape you from behind. And if your foot collapsed in, it didn't matter what shoe you wanted. You got a prescription that said you needed a, a stability shoe, support shoe, whatever you want to call it, and, and motion control, right? right? And that stuck around until when was Five Fingers. Uh, Free came around in 2004. Oh, right. yeah, you can't forget about the Nike Free. No, and that kind of changed things because that was really emphasizing the free movement of yep. the foot, right? And that, that was more um, like a training tool that Lenana had at, at Stanford for the cross-country team to strengthen your foot, yeah. right? And well, then, and that's what it was supposed to be originally, but yeah. it really ended up just becoming a casual lifestyle shoe. You would see it on the uh, feet of people walking around at the mall. It was crazy. It was a thing like we could not feel we, like our sales. Like in one day, our sales of free went through the roof. We go, what the hell happened? Well, Oprah was talking about how great frees are. I mean, Oprah lives right down the street, and it just blew up. And it only lasted a short amount of time. After that, Five Fingers came on like a year later. Um, And then... We can't go too fast past the Five Fingers because I had several friends vouch for the Five Fingers. Yes. And do you know how many... Of them got stress fractures? All of them. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. that They were not much dissimilar to the shoes that I ran in Yeah. in the 70s and 80s. Yep. There's a huge amount of stress fractures and just lower leg injuries. Shin splints were everywhere, yeah. right? Uh, the cushion just didn't exist then. But they would always say it's building up my foot stronger. It, yes. But, uh, you know, I'm happy to just not have a stress fracture. Yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> uh, they were very uncomfortable. Uh, and for those that don't know, Five Fingers was invented by a guy named Tony Post, who is now the president of Topo. So I would expect a resurgent five-fingers type shoe to come from those at some, that'd be silly not to, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the five or six people that actually want that kind of shoe, you know, yeah. you got to make it for them. <laughs> um, probably the next big, big thing that came along, though, was in 2009, Hoka. Right. Right, which was completely anti everything that was going on in the industry. Yeah. I mean, when we first saw them, you know, we just laughed our heads off. Yeah. I yeah. think everyone did. Everyone did. And um, and we were a little questionable if we were even going to bring them in. I think mo- no one really brought them in. No. And we were one of the first we people were, to give it the We chance. were one of the first people to put it online. We did the same thing with Ultra and stuff like that. We yeah. gave everyone a chance. But it was Johnny Hellerson who had a Boulder Running Company yeah. who convinced me to bring them in. You know, he said that they were a spell checker for your feet. You know, and the thing is, is that if you ever get a chance to listen to or meet Nico or Jean-Luc, the two founders of Hoka... I just, Nico's a madman and, and Jean-Luc's pretty brilliant, but you know, their whole thing was they got into, they were, they were not runners. They were, uh, Jean-Luc was a skier, professional skier and was big behind the parabolic ski about the larger, uh, driver, uh, in golf. And he got into ultra marathons and there, if you ever go to France, uh, and watch people do an ultra marathon, no one gives a crap about the uphill. They bomb the downhill. They absolutely are insane running downhill. And um, so that's what John Luke and, and Nico did was made a shoe that could go downhill faster. So they needed something light. They needed it cushioned and they needed a rocker. Basically, they're trying to invent like a half circle on the bottom of their feet mm-hmm. so that there's no resistance. Right. And, uh, you know, who ended up finding uh, really liking the shoe was a bunch of my friends who were old, who used to run, were broken and they started wearing hokas. It became the shoe for old broken people, right? Yeah. And then it started getting more popular and stuff like that because it was just more comfortable. Yeah. Right? I mean, Hoka's are known for being light and soft 
and with a rocker. Yeah. And once people started getting on their feet, they, you know, it worked out. But, you know, I would go to these meetings and talk to Van Dyne, Jim Van Dyne, who was the president, and the shoes were so freaking ugly. They were mm-hmm. horrid. I said, you need to get a colorist. You need to get a stylist, especially on the women's side, because at that time we were selling like 10 to 1 men's to women's yeah. on Hoka. And uh, we were doing okay with them, and it wasn't until uh, Van Dyne called me up one day and he says, I got a whole bunch of too many Hokas. Would you buy them? And we agreed on a price that was very, very good, so I was able to buy all of them. And at the time, my partners were saying, is this going to work? Because this is the largest closeout buy we've ever done. And I said, it's going to work. And once we put them on sale, people just start buying them up because they want to have a good experience. The negative was, you know, they didn't fit. So we got like 12% of them back, but whatever. It was a good experience. But um, when the Hoka shoes have changed so much over the years, like you said in the beginning, they were bricks, they were ugly. They kind of started progressing over the years. I remember the big on the roadside was Clifton One, Huaca, some big early ones. And when you bring up Nico, I I remember because Nico loved the Huaca and he actually called in because he wanted lots of huacas to stock up yeah i think he probably tried to order 20 pairs yeah and the csr our customer service rep wouldn't put it through <laughs> because they thought it was a scam and nico just said he was very calm yeah. very polite but he goes excuse me uh my name is nico mermu do you know who i am <laughs> they didn't know they didn't know right we got it figured out we got him his huacas yeah. but uh but that was at the time uh chris i forgot chris's last name he was uh he ran at washington was steeplechaser mm-hmm. but he was in charge of innovation for deckers chris hillier hillier right and he would take actually grind the outsole off of that shoe because and use that right to make it lighter and actually stuck better in wet weather yeah, it was interesting all that at that time, all this the stuff that they were doing. You know, that was the time I could walk by Jean-Luc's office and grab, was it Hupana? <laughs> yep. Right? He said, I need someone to buy X number of these things to put on the market. I said, okay, it's done. So that was the first, like, lower profile Hoka that came on the market, right? And most people think that that shoe was planned, but that wouldn't have no, probably that was, been existence if you hadn't no, picked that up off no, the table. No, but if you, go to, if you go to Jean-Luc's office, there's shoes everywhere. Yeah. Freaking everywhere. Yeah. And yeah, some of them are good or some aren't that good, but whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've tested everything you can think of. And right. I think we've spent so much time right now on Hoka because for the longest time, shoes kind of, there was progress over the years, but right. it seemed like Hoka was a huge revolution. Yeah. But then we go past Hoka and we look at the past 15 years. It's almost the amount of innovation we've seen in the last 15 years and really in the last six, seven years is more than what we've seen in 50 years. It's yeah, a crazy it's time crazy. in space. Because if you go back to the Villanova, that's 1975. Yeah. Then people focused on on cushioning for the most part. So you had air, yeah. you had gel, you had that thing. But no one was really concerned about energy return. So EVA returns like 60 or 65% energy. And it wasn't 20, until 2013, Adidas introduced Boost, and that returned more like 70, 75%. And in fact, it was pretty significant increase in, in energy return. Enough so that the men's and women's marathon world records were set in Adidas shoes at that point. So it's a, it's a TPU material, and the stuff is returns more energy, but is very very heavy, and it lasts forever. So if you're one of those people that likes shoes to last forever, find a TPU shoe. It's just going to weigh a ton. Yeah. Well, I think that's the interesting part about that time because everyone was thinking about lightweight, minimal, right. keep it as light as possible, and Boost was heavier. But we weren't thinking about the efficiency benefits not and the all. responsiveness. Not at all. I mean, at the time, and I go back to, I don't know what year this was, but the Mizuno Universe. 
3.1 out racing flat with absolutely no cushioning. So at the time, you had to give something up to get something. So if you wanted light, you had to give up cushioning. If you wanted more cushioning, you had to give up weight, right? And energy return wasn't part of the equation. It wasn't until boost came along that you had softness and energy return, but you, you had weight. And it wasn't until three years later at the Olympic trials where it was, what is it, Rupp and who else? Shalane Flanagan, Flanagan Amy Craig. Right? They wore these 4%, right? And that, and then also what uh, Kipchoge breaking two hours of marathon, and then in 2017, I mean the crap hit the fan, right? That stuff was everywhere, and everyone was bailing ship on whoever they were sponsoring and running in four percents. Well, we were both at the LA trials, yeah. and I remember seeing Galen go by with some thicker shoes. Right. And at first, I just thought maybe Galen's injured. Maybe yeah. he just needs a little bit more to his streak. Right. And then when we saw more athletes, Nike athletes, wearing that shoe. We started to think there was something there, and then it wasn't until Kipchoge won gold at Rio where all the rumors started to come out right. that the foam was, was something magic. Maybe even in the multi-percentage, 4% energy. Yeah, it, was, it, it was crazy, right? Yeah. And the thing was is that my understanding, and I don't know if this is true or not, I'm probably just making shit, sorry to make stuff <laughs> up, but um, is one of the, the guys on the product team at Hoka was trying to convince Hoka to make a, a, a stacked racing shoe and couldn't do it because at the time uh, Peter Thompson was working and Peter Thompson lives up in Eugene. Uh, he was head of education for the IAAF, which is world athletics right now. Uh, he was, he and, uh, and Jean-Luc were really big into carbon. So you had, right. You had foams that they were working on. You had carbon plate, you had a rocker, you had everything there. And apparently this person left for nike took all that ideas and nike said sure you know they did it and actually if you look at a four percent at that time versus a bondi and you put them on, on a table the rockers are exactly the same it's the same you know geometries which is you know you go um, you know hoka had something they didn't know it right and carbon plates have been around for a long time yeah i We've, forgot with the, with the first it was a brook shoe yeah i yeah. mean it's 40 plus years and zoot had all those ones that they break Zoot had several that yeah. we had in the building and we had a worker break two during a sales meeting because you couldn't flex it without it snapping. It, yeah, it snapped and nap <laughs> and stuff like that. But they, you know, they weren't looking at it the way right. we're looking at it now. Well, that's the thing. You've got geometries, right. you've got the plate, but none of that works without the ultra lightweight foam. Right. The Piva is what, what uh, Nike came out with in 2016. Yeah. And that was a game changer. So it went from 60 to 65% energy return to EVA, 70, 75 for boost and then 80 85 for the four yeah. percent it could be more but it was significant right yeah and everyone just jumped ship and was running in those things and i remember i think it was a 2019 cim yeah. and i had some athletes running and out of the first 500 people every single person was wearing a four percent every single person and everyone was saying well we need to make racing flats for two-hour marathoners and some for four-hour five-hour marathon i said it doesn't matter if someone wants to be faster they want to be faster yeah. whatever their fast is well and then a few years later, every brand started to trickle out their own super shoe because right. you had to. It's, yeah. I mean, this is a new world now with these super foams. Right. Now every brand has their own super racer, yep. sometimes multiple super racers, yep. overstacked super trainers, yeah. shoes like the Prime X, which are illegal yep. for pros because of the stack, stack heights, a 40, the plates. Yeah, supposed to be 40 or something like that. But, you know, we're, but, at, the, we're at the stage now where it, it, it's crazy, but some of the stuff that we're seeing, like when I say we're, I'm saying like me, Connor, and a couple other people in the building. I mean, we've seen shoes uh, 
and the people are bringing them in all talking grams, but, um, you know, once you, it was over 50 mil stack, mm -hmm. super wide base, mm -hmm. a crazy plate, right? Yeah. Uh, super stable. And Connor ran it. You said it was one of the best shoes you've ever run in. Yeah. So it's higher than the, the strong, right? Strong is really squirrely. The yeah. two it, might be a little bit more the stable. The two but got more stable, but it's still, still squirrely. And the two gained some weight. Right. Which, you know, whenever you add stack, that does become an issue, but, but in this case, it's I not. mean, you said it was super light, super springy, yep. and super stable. Yes. So the unicorn exists. I've seen it. I doubt it's going to come to market, but it's 250 grams, and I had to figure out how to do grams to ounces in my head, and it's three point, it's point oh three five or something to that effect, well, three four. So basically, you take 250, multiply it times three. That's 750. So seven point five. And then half of 350 is 175, so that's going to be eight and three quarters ounces. So this shoe that Connor ran in is eight and three quarter ounces in a size nine. Yeah. Which is insane. Wild. And then we saw another shoe that uh, the gentleman who just won UTMB. Yes. Right? Walmsley. Yes. We saw the prototype. And this is crazy, too. It's same stack as a Speed Goat with a crazy plate. Um super foams that are it's it's proprietary to Li Ning, which is a huge company in china and hoka it's just super expensive and so you have this thing and that shoe is 230 grams so we're talking about whatever the heck that is sub eight ounce I way yeah sub eight ounce trail racing shoe right and it works because the guy won in a course record right yeah i'm sure that his fitness had something to do with it too but but um i mean the stuff that we're seeing is just it's insane. And, you know, the, the return on energy, we're seeing stuff where people are saying they have a 95% return on energy. And you go, well, the most you're ever going to get is 100%, right? You can't go past 100%, you know. So, yeah. I mean, that might be a super, uh, you know, another discussion down the road. But, yeah. you know, what, what's the future of, of shoes, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, some of the other stuff is on another episode we'll talk about actually the different super foams. Because it's just not EVA and TPU and yep. PIBA anymore. It's there's all kinds of stuff. There's OBCs. There's blends. Right. There's all types of and you know there's just you know you can go down a rabbit hole and every single compound you know even between like fuel cell there's different versions of fuel cell that have different fields. Yes, you read on uh, you know, whatever. Probably running shoe geeks probably has the most amount of this stuff, but. Um, you know, people are saying, well, I have the Invincible or I have the Alpha Fly or something like that, right? And it's way more, uh, actually, not to the Invincible. I have the, what is it? The Inv Invincible and the Ultra Fly have the same. Yes. It's called it's called Zumax, but it's a TPU-based midsole. We don't know that for a fact, but TPE. that's a, or TPE, right? It's yeah. TPE. So, yeah. and then you have PIBA-based, which is the other Zumax that goes into their super fast shoes. So, no, they're not going to have the same attributes no they're not going to feel the same no they're not going to hold up the same right right because they're they're for different for trying different to accomplish purposes. different purposes right Correct. and same thing with fresh foam yep right they're tuning it differently yep right then what's their other one uh you got fuel cell fuel cell so the fuel cell for the upcoming uh what you call it rebel will yes. be tuned differently than the sc elite the sc elite stuff like that so yeah. people you know just because it says it's the same some kind of uh what material yes they they bake them differently. Right. There's different recipes for what purpose they're trying to get out of it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we've seen so much progress 
yeah. in just the last few years. We, we've talked about the future. I think there's a lot more to come there. A oh, big we, time. We've seen crazy things. But I think let's go back. We've talked about the history from the 60s yeah. till today. I want to talk about now some specific key models that were really important over the years. We talked about 2016, right. seeing Galen Rupp in the Vaporfly. Right. But another shoe that people don't really think about during the 2016 Olympics uh-huh. was what Galen wore before the marathon. And that was on the track in the 10K. He wore a Vaporfly track proto. So this was a spiked up Vaporfly. And the word on the street was a few weeks before they were worried that Galen was going to be too tired to race the marathon right. with the 10K before. So they said, can we come up with a shoe that will keep his legs fresh? He'd been running a lot in the Vaporfly. They said, let's put a spike plate on that. They cobbled it together. And I believe a week, week and a half before they had a final version ready. They were worried it was maybe not going to last the race. Yeah. But they said, we're, we're racing in it. It worked. He ended up coming in fourth place, maybe wasn't quite aggressive enough, but right. it saved his legs yep. for that bronze in the marathon. Yeah, I think my friend Dave Frank, who was the coach at Central Catholic, had some of those shoes because yeah. Galen ran for him at Central Catholic, ran, ran for Salazar with his assistant coach. So Galen would always give him prototypes of shoes, and so the kids at Central Catholic would be running around these crazy Nike spikes and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, that's the other part of it, you know, in um, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff about these super shoes, like and probably the next one just going to, you know, our super shoes for you. Yeah. Like I read something on the Internet and somebody wrote in. Uh, they had they called it a three percent. There's a four percent they've had and they warmed to work and stood on their feet all day in these shoes. And he goes, they hurt my feet a lot. <laughs> What's wrong? Well, you're taking a highly elite racing shoe not designed to be stood in any way shape or form and you're standing in them so it's like taking your ferrari down to home depot to get bags of cement right to work on your fence it's not it's not designed to do that yeah you know and that that's a large part of you know a lot of people don't understand it just because it's expensive doesn't mean it's the best thing out there for that purpose right just because galen rupp is winning the marathon and it doesn't mean it's for you to walk around at the mall right it, yeah, I mean, it, it, you don't want that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and at the same time, so we talk about Galen wearing that special proto yeah. at the 10K. We see that kind of year after year since, you know, probably since the early 2000s. I remember uh, Haile yeah. wore a modified spike. Do, yeah. do you remember that? Yeah, I forgot which racing flat it was, but uh, him and Jen Ryan's ward. It was at, uh, I, I want to say, Atlanta Olympics, because mm-hmm. that track was Mondo. Yep. It was made for Michael Johnson to set world records. Yep. It wasn't made for Gabriel Slossie run, run rounds in the 10,000. So he actually had a racing flat with a, a spike plate, and they actually brought that to market. Yeah. Right? But the whole idea was to try to save your legs. And when we talk about 96 with Michael Johnson, yeah. you can't forget about the golden spike. Yes. I think three and a half ounces was like a three piece upper, no outsole. A, it, was, it was crazy. Yeah, like ceramic pins. Yeah. Everything about it was to be as minimal as possible. Right. And I remember they actually gave the opportunity for other athletes to wear that shoe. Right. And everyone said it was too minimal. It was too little shoe. But Michael liked that. And he yeah. had that like powerful stride. Yeah, well, he, you know, he shuffled. <laughs> you know, and everyone thought that was bad until he said, what, you're in 1932 or something like that in the 200. But if you think about it, when you have a shuffling style, if you have higher turnover, you're applying force to the ground more often than someone who's in the air. Yeah. Right? Things like that. But yeah. um, 
like before we came over here, I was looking around on the internet because that's what I do. And so I thought I would come up with something called Joe Answers the Internet. So is, back, it, is this a new segment? Yeah, for it's the a new pod? segment. I mean, it's a new podcast. It's official. Actually, it's a runcast, but you know, whatever the <laughs> heck it is. So there's an anonymous poster on the Running Shoe Geeks. And I keep going there because it's, it's quite funny to read a lot of this stuff. But this isn't really funny. This actually applies to this. It says, the question is, what's the consensus on how far you can take these super shoes? 300, 400, 500 miles. Or is it dependent on where does the foam go bad? So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. But basically, um, the super shoes are designed to go fast. Yeah. And they're not designed to go fast for long periods of time. So... I have this holy grail that I want to get a device that measures impact in a shoe, initial impact in a running shoe, and then charts it over time and can tell you when your shoe has like 20% less. It'd like email you or text you, right? Your shoes are worn out. I have to do a study to figure out what the inflection point is when you get hurt. It might be 20 or 25% or something like that. So a company in Italy that Jeff Gray found, a guy from Helix that tested a lot of our shoes, he found this Italian company and they said they had the device. So I got the devices and I brought them in here and I asked them what the protocol was on how they determined that, you know, what, what they use. And they use 250 to 300 pound Italian guys running at about 20 minute mile pace because they figured the heavier the person, the more force that you put on the shoe. Well, they gave me the devices and one of the people I had testing it was Elena who worked for us at the time. She works for on right now, but she was a pole vaulter at UCLA also at San Luis Obispo High School. But, um, and she was all of maybe 110, maybe 120 pounds at the time. But she got on the treadmill and she was running close to 530 pace. Well, she blew this, the damn thing up. And I contacted the guys. They said, your thing's wrong. And they go, well, we use 300 pound guys at 20 minute pace. And I said, you guys don't understand that someone who's lighter and running fast puts significantly more force on a shoe. There is a, there is a reason I'm telling everyone all this stuff. But, it's just, it just, that's the way it is. If you ever see, uh, probably the strongest guys per, for, uh, you know, for, for body weight are the milers, 800 milers, because you have to generate so much force to break four minutes in the mile. And sprinters generate a lot of force and throwers generate a lot of force. And when you generate all that force onto shoes, doesn't matter what your weight is necessarily, you're going to wear out the shoe faster, right? And so speed has something to do with it. So going back to the man's or the anonymous person's question, you don't know how long it's going to last because you don't know what the purpose of it. I'm sure Kipchoge's shoes that he broke two hours in were good for about 26 miles, right? He wasn't taking them out. And then there's other people I was reading their responses and they said, I run them for about 100 miles and then they go bad, right? And then use them for other stuff. But, you know, there's there's a lot of different things going on with pubas. And I think that also is important because... The question is not only how long is it good, but how long is it going to be 100% optimal? Because right. when we heard about the Vaporfly, when it first came out, um, we were the first people to bring that shoe in. It was originally called the Mayfly. Right. And the Mayfly was known for only being good for, what, 60, 60 miles? miles? Yeah. Um, so that was the the thought process with the first Vaporfly was it was going to last about 100 miles yeah. or so. Yeah. And once we got it on foot... We found that, yeah, it had that peak efficiency for about 100 miles, right. but it still felt really good 
after. Yeah. And then you hit 200 miles. And a lot of people, once they hit 100, it would become their workout shoe. Right. And I've put on some of my super shoes 500, 600 miles. Yeah, maybe they're not quite as optimal, but right. they, still they still feel really good. Right. And that's the thing with the different foams. You know, we'll go on to this when we talk about all the foams together. But, you know, EVA for the most part is like 100, 150, maybe 200 miles. You know, uh, TPU can go upwards of 1,000 miles. You know, and PIBA is pretty good. Yeah. You know, four or 500 miles. Right. So it kind of depends. And again, it also depends on what you're using it for, how much you weigh, yep. your race times and all that kind of stuff. Right. So yeah. there isn't one patent answer. But um, I don't know. What else you want to talk about? You know, I think uh, we hit the history. OK. We hit shoes. OK. We hit uh, our favorite kind of shoes we've seen over the years. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think maybe let's let's leave the people with what they can be excited for for the future. What are we going to bring to this podcast to get people coming back week after week? Oh yeah, well the thing is, is, is it's not just going to be shoes. I mean, you know, that's that's the thing is I watch a lot of podcasts. I'm into cars. I'm into running shoes. I'm into golf. And what I want to do is bring a lot of stuff, not just shoes, but training, coaches, athletes, people in the running shoe industry, people that design, people that sell. You know, throw back the curtain a bit and explain why things happen in the running shoe industry that you might not understand. You know, why did this shoe turn out crappy when previous versions were really good? You know, you have somebody worrying about margin, you know, and that ruins the experience. You know, get some of the the better minds in the the business, you know, start some discussions there. Um, We'll do some stupid stuff too, you know. We'll take some of the better people out golfing. See if I can get angles in here to talk. You know, stupid crap. No, no promises. No promises. But but you never know where the guy is. Anyways, <laughs> uh, yeah, this would be yeah, one of the guys I golf with is Craig Engel, so I could probably convince okay. him to come in on that. And last time you guys golfed, who who took the win? Uh, well, funny. So this is, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I did. He can hit the crap out of the bar. He just doesn't know where it's going. So we were out there golfing, and he comes up to me. He goes, "What's this E club?" And I said. <laughs> I said, Craig, it's a wedge. It's a W club. <laughs> he was looking at it sideways. Which <laughs> was pretty funny. Yeah. But okay. uh, yeah, for the next for the next podcast, we'll talk about um, what foams in depth. In depth. Okay. Uh, super shoes are they for you? And the future of running shoes. Some of the stuff we've seen. Because once you get to one hundred percent on this energy return on shoes, you have to do other stuff. Yeah. There has to be a mechanical advantage of some sort. Yeah. Design, geometries. You know, and then explain some of the stuff that we've seen. You know, again, a lot of the stuff's not going to make it to market. Yeah. But anyways, so. Well, I'm excited. I feel like when we had this initial discussion, this podcast is going to be great. You see the YouTube videos where we get to talk the specs. We talk how the shoe feels on foot. But I feel like we can get a little bit more raw here. We can tell the behind the scenes. Yeah, for sure. Our own experience. Right. And uh, like I said, if you put me and you together... Should have something. Because the thing is, Connor's knowledge on actually what makes up all the foams is way superior to mine. I mean, I got a, a general idea, you know, but I don't know all the ins and outs, you know. Well, you bring the good stories I'll bring from, stories, yeah, from, from different people. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, the other thing is I, I tend to attend a lot of track meets. Yeah. So hoping to, you know, show some stuff from track meets, you know, of the people we get to see. Yeah. You know, Um Going to Prefontaine in a couple of weeks. Perfect. Uh, but well, we know there's going to be stories there. That's going to be a heck of a meet. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe I'm sitting in Cap's Corner, although he hasn't responded to my request for tickets. He says okay. he's working on it, but okay. can't imagine that guy can't get tickets to yeah. that meet. 
He parks his Ferrari in front of Hayward Field. I mean, come on. <laughs> so, well, go. big names, sneak Sh- peeks of shoes, yeah, running culture, everything. I think if you're a fan of the sport of running, whether it's track, shoes, this is going to be the podcast for you. I think where we'll leave it is there's a lot more to come. Probably the best thing that we can ask for is like, subscribe, share with your friends, oh, yeah, give the, the reviews. <laughs> Let's get that algorithm moving because yeah, we got to get this podcast I on the I watched uh, some, pot, you know, some YouTube stuff on how to monetize. We don't need to monetize it, but you know, I, I guess you can like, comment, subscribe. Yeah. I probably wouldn't. I, I don't, but you could if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, so you there you go. here first. <laughs> yes. And where can you find this? Well, you can find it, you know, Running Warehouse. We've got our YouTube channel. We've got a lot of fun videos there. Apple, you know, really anywhere that you can find podcasts will be available. We're going to try to figure out how to make this actually into a podcast. Yeah. And I think that's the next thing we got to do. Because, you know, when you're on a long run, you want to be able to listen to us banter for an hour. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what people want to do. Perfect. Anyways, thank you very much. Well, that was it. All right. Stay tuned. A lot more fun to come. Yeah. All right. Peace out. 